standing as I read the Holy Word of God this morning, Revelation chapter 6, continuing our study of Revelation, we're in chapter 6, looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. So this is the very Word of God. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Amen. May he add his blessings to the reading and now to the preaching of his word. Please be seated. Years ago, I was on a plane heading for Sioux Center, Iowa. Not a lot there in Sioux Center, Iowa, but I was going there as a commissioner uh, for General Assembly. And in flight, we hit some turbulence. And the seatbelt began flashing, coming on, you know, the, Buckle up, buckle up, buckle up. And I happened to notice that the guy across the aisle was not buckling up his seatbelt. He just left it unbuckled. I personally didn't care. Uh, but when the su uh, plane suddenly shook violently, and then a bank began to fall, the flight attendant screamed out with a thick German accent, we're all going to die! <laughs> And while she was doing that, others began to join in her screaming. And, 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 and as that was happening, I happened to espy the guy across the aisle, slightly or quietly buckling his belt. <laughs> and I thought, how odd. The plane is going down. The attendant said, we're all going to die. So I wonder what he thinks that seat belt is going to do for him. Now, I know what you're thinking probably is, that, well, what's wrong with the pastor? I mean... He's going to die, and his last thoughts are not about his wife, not about his children, but about why this guy is buckling his belt. It's inexplicable. But uh, obviously, we didn't die. Uh, what happened was, uh, we were informed later on that the plane was hit by lightning, which caused a momentary power outage where the engines went off. They had to be rebooted. It only lasted maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute but it seemed like a lifetime. Um, but in that, that time, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm reflecting back, and, and I, one thing that I thought about that guy buckling his belt is that we want to feel safe in a moment of danger, don't we? We want to feel safe. That's why some people carry weapons. They'll, they'll probably be too nervous to ever use those guns or whatever, but but the gun at least makes them feel safe. We make out wills because we want to feel our assets are safe when we die. 
that our heirs will get exactly what we want them to get. We wear seatbelts in, in traffic because while they don't always keep us safe, at least we feel that we are. But here's the question. What happens when tragedy hits and there is no safety net? When there's nothing to keep you from impending disaster? See, that's what the sixth seal here represents as judgment, again, falls on the earth. Now, We've looked at these uh, uh, previous five seals. The first four seals were opened, and we saw how the four horsemen were unleashed on the earth so that conquest, violence, famine, and death were poured out as partial judgment upon the earth. And, and you might recall that I mentioned that those are the various woes that are inflicted on the world during the entire church age and, and, and various troubles. Those various troubles vary in length. They vary in, in, in degree and in, in intensity. But uh, one thing I mentioned about that is that uh, as the world draws closer and closer to the final judgment, those uh, woes will begin to intensify and that these trials are not poured out only upon the ungodly. Even the saints will suffer under those woes. The world will, will receive God's judgment while the, world is, while the saints are being sanctified through the woes of the four seals. And then we saw the fifth seal. And how when it was opened, uh, we saw that the, the, there were these martyrs crying out to God for vengeance. In that, we saw that as the world uh, grows and in, in, uh, uh, suffers God's judgment, it becomes more and more angry against God, and it pours out its angry against God uh, on his people, the Christian saints. And these uh, martyrs that, that even suffer death at the hand of ungodly men, they cry out to God again, asking God to avenge their, their righteous blood. And all that now leads us to the events unleashed here by the sixth seal, where we see that God is answering those prayers. So in the fifth seal, we saw the, the martyrs are, are praying to God. Here in the sixth seal, we see that those prayers are being answered. In the fifth seal, there's a promise. In the sixth seal, we see those promises being fulfilled. Verse 11 uh, we're told again that the martyrs were told to rest for a little while until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that God chose all the elect in Christ before the foundation of the world. And, and so with that, we, we can understand that there is an exact number of saints that only God knows. But when that number is completed, the sixth seal is opened. The opening of seals one through five happen, we see, in rapid succession. Those judgments take place during the whole of the church age, as we just mentioned, but there, and there's a time delay, though, between the fifth and the sixth seal so that the number of the elect would be brought in, the total number of martyrs would be completed, and that hasn't happened yet. And so from our perspective, the sixth seal 
depicts a future time. It's a last day judgment. And we're seeing that it's a last day judgment by the things that are described again in verses 12 through 14. These events are cosmic. They're not just localized. They're universal disasters with an unprecedented magnitude. The earth and the heavens are shaken to an extent that nothing of the world will remain. Now again, the sixth seal uh, uh, presents uh, judgments on the world and and direct answer to the martyrs' prayers. Uh, You might recall as we think about prayer, how Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then in James chapter 5, verse 16, we are encouraged to pray as it tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, just how much can the effective prayer of a righteous man do? How much will your prayers be answered? Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 14 tells us. Do you see how powerful the prayers of the saints are? You know, this is a very comforting thing to me. Um, if, if you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. There is no getting out of that. You will be persecuted. The Bible tells you so. You will be Uh, Anyone who lives God in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is the promise of the scripture. The world, of course, hates you. The devil hates you. They will seek to do much mischief in your life. They will try to make your days miserable. They will perhaps pursue you even to a grisly death. But don't fear any of that, beloved. Don't fear any of that. Jesus himself said that not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father's notice. In fact, your father in heaven knows the number of hairs on your head. You see how precious you are to him? He knows the intimate details of of your life, things you don't even know yourself. And so when you cry out to him for justice and when you groan under the oppression of ungodly and unprincipled men, as your soul is vexed by the blatant sinfulness of lawless people, these verses instruct you to patience because the Lord knows how to rescue you. And he will literally move heaven and earth to answer your cries. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look forward to this day of judgment when Jesus returns. Revelation chapter 6 shows us that while God appears to delay the answer to those prayers, his delay, again, is not because he's disinterested in you. It's not because he's disinterested in the world, what's going on in the affairs of this world. His answer uh, is, is not without power to answer. No, he has his own timing. He's waiting for the very last saint to be saved. He has his own time. Oh, but look out, because when he answers, 
it will be such a mighty demonstration of his power that the answer to the prayers uh, the, the prayers of the saints will actually bring about the end of the world. Little flock, your prayers rise up to God as a sweet incense. And these verses of our text reveal his answer to your deepest prayerful sighs. Christ will come again. And when he comes, he's exacting a terrifying retribution of those who do not know God and who will not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. However, someone may scratch their head and say, well, why can't the world just go on as it is? Why, why does the world have to be judged? Well, listen to Isaiah chapter 24, verses 4 and 6, because in these verses, God gives us an answer. He says this, The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Now, what Isaiah is pointing to there is that in, Isaiah, in Genesis chapter 1, God made Adam as the crown of his creation. And in chapter 2, God placed that crown in the Garden of Eden to be a faithful priestly king in that garden temple. And in that place, Adam entered into an everlasting covenant with God in which God told Adam that in the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Adam ate of that forbidden fruit. He deserved death of the very day he took that fruit. The very day he rebelled against God, he deserved death. But Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God delayed that death sentence and put creation under a curse. Romans chapter 8, verses 21 and 22 reflects this by saying that the creation is under the slavery of corruption. And that the whole creation, listen to this, the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together to now. Since the fall of Adam, God has sustained the created order by his common grace. And what does mankind do with that deferred sentence of grace and grace? They live in gratitude? Do they repent? Do they offer up their hearts in loving service for all his gracious gifts? No, they take everything that God gives to them and they don't honor him. They don't give him thanks. They exchange his truth for a lie. They worship and serve creation rather than their creator. All humanity carries Adam's guilt, breaking that, that everlasting covenant in the garden. But every person Every son of Adam also stands condemned for their own law-breaking. That law was placed on their hearts by God as he made them in his own image. And they break the moral law that's written on that heart in the covenant. 
And again, while the whole creation, or while the, all humanity should use creation for God's glory, what do they do? They pollute creation. They advance their own pride and their own idolatry. And, and what we saw from the scriptures is that right now, creation is groaning. It must give gracious sustenance to those wicked people who are God-haters. The ground, the earth, is straining because it would rather open up and, and devour God-haters. The breath or the air itself would rather be sucked into a vacuum rather than let God-haters breathe the air. Creation is groaning. But the sixth seal reveals that God lifts that. The delay of justice has now come to an end. And in this, judgment happens to the earth. And we see what happens, that the first thing happens is a great earthquake. Again, this is not just a localized earthquake. I don't know if any one of you have ever been in an earthquake. I, I was in an earthquake of, uh, it was like 8.2 on, uh, on the magnitude, Richter scale. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. The world shook, and there was nothing that you could do about it. And then for days, the tremors just kept going, and, and, and the terrain was leveled. Floods and tsunamis occurred. But this is something even greater. This is a cosmic earthquake. It comes from the Earth's very core, so that the entire globe is shaken. Again, we can go back to Isaiah 24, where in verse 20 it says that the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack in the whirlwind. John saw how this earthquake was shooking, and then from that earthquake, the sun turned black. The moon, the color of the moon turned blood red. Stars fell from the, from the skies to the earth. In fact, the sky itself split open like a scroll. The mountains and the islands were violently moved. Now, these verses seem symbolic and picturesque, but all of the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, universally describe the end of the world, that last day judgment with the same language. What we're seeing here is cosmic, utter, thorough, horrible overthrow of all worldly powers, influences, and systems. It all ends here. Again, the Old Testament uses uh, much of this language to depict judgments of nations and of cities, but even as they do, they're only typifying the great and last day of judgment when the earth will be utterly destroyed. Listen to Joel chapter 3, for instance. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem until the heavens and the earth trembles. Isaiah 34, and all the host of heaven will wear away. The sky will be rolled up like a scroll. You hear these languages. Their host will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, as one withers from a fig leaf. 
and fig tree. On that Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching the disciples about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, yes, but he looks beyond that destruction to the last day judgment. Uh, whatever happened in, in, to Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was just but a, a small type and shadow of last day judgment. And as Jesus is reflecting over that, he says, he says this, he quotes several Old Testament passages, and he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, again, here's the thing, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. You see all this language you hear again here in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14. The end day judgment will come with utter destruction of the heavens and of the earth. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 furthers this teaching, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is important, isn't it? The world thinks that it's going to go on and on and on and on and on. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming in which this world will come to an end. And the entire universe will be affected. The heavens and the earth. The earth... We're told here we'll undergo a complete change through catastrophic events of colossal proportions. There will be no seatbelt to protect you when this strong earthquake shakes the land plates from their moorings. On that day, the earth will seem as though it is falling apart, splitting in two. And to use Isaiah's language, the earth will convulse like an unstable drunk who cannot walk, or like a tent blown about by a strong wind. Again, the point of all this language, beloved, is to warn unbelievers of this. If the mountains and the islands, these great symbols of permanence, can be moved, then there is no stable, safe place for you to hide. Again, that's brought up in verses 15 and 16, where John sees all of humanity desperately scampering around, looking for some place to hide from the judgment that is surely coming to them. Notice in, in that description, John describes seven classes of society. He, he talks about kings, noblemen, commanders, of uh, military commanders, rich people, strong, slave, and freemen. Seven ranks, all to say that all of mankind, without prejudice, will be swept up into this judgment. If you think that being great and powerful man or a person in high governmental or military position will enable you to escape the wrath of the Lamb, here's a statement that you're delusional. If you think your, your vast number or your vast bank account, all your money, or your position will buy you a place of safety. You're wrong. Here we're told that God is not a respecter of persons. 
Your political, your economic, or your social standing means nothing to him. All God sees is the guilt of humanity that deserves to be crushed by his wrath. So these persons persons in verse 15 that John described, these, these persons that are going through judgment earlier on in verse 10 were described as those who dwell on the earth. That's significant. The description refers to people whose spiritual quality is earthly and not heavenly. In other words, these people who are going through judgment are dwellers of the earth. They are characterized by the things of earth. They look to and they trust in human culture, human ingenuity, human technology, as these things are their ultimate goal. These things are their security. Going back to Romans chapter 1, these are those who worship things created instead of their creator. They haven't trusted in the Lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. So because they're not going to trust in the Lamb who was slain for sin, they must stand on their own. Will they be able to do that? They love the earth more than heaven. And therefore, it's, it's ironic what God does here. They, they love the earth more than heaven, and, 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 and judgment and punishment, God takes away the very thing they want. They would have the earth, and they would unjustly kill anyone who loves heaven more than earth. And so God rips the earth apart. They will seek their refuge from the Lamb's wrath and the mountains and the rocks of the earth. But these things will not hide them from the eyes of the omniscient God. They trusted in the earth. But the earth's mountains and rocks will turn against them. For the mountains and the rocks must serve their creator, even if these wicked people will not. My friends, that's a lesson for each and every one of us. Listen to this. Your idols will eventually turn on you to condemn you. Your idols that you love so much that you hide in, those idols that you chase after that you would give up everything for, they will mock you and testify against you. They cannot give you the ultimate safety or refuge you want. And so the question finally is, the great day of the Lamb's wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The ungodly people of this earth laugh at the idea that Jesus is coming again to judge. They think it's nonsense. This is some mythological story to keep little kids afraid. Oh they will suddenly be surprised. We're told that Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Yes, my friends, listen, there is a day coming. It may be soon. It may be not soon. But on that day, all the haughty looks of man will be humbled. On that day, the conceit of men will be bowed down. Who 
will be able to stand? That's a great question to ask yourself. Will I be able to stand? God is holy. God is just and he is righteous. And his holiness and his justice and his righteousness are perfect. They're pure. God cannot be bribed. God cannot be coerced to turn away from his justice. And those who dwell in his presence must be righteous as well. What does that righteousness look like? Well, the scriptures are full of definitions, but, but here, listen to this, uh, Psalm 24. This kind of gives us a start of what righteousness looks like. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or has sworn deceitfully. And what the psalmist is saying there, that the person who is righteous must have both an outward and an inward righteousness that is pure, undefiled, genuine, and complete. Remember, Isaiah 24, God said that mankind broke the everlasting covenant, this covenant of works that was in the Garden of Eden, to be judged under that covenant means that they will be judged by the things that they have done. Being declared righteous means that your deeds must be done in perfect obedience to the law, in perfect accordance to God's justice. In another Old Testament passage, the prophecies of the day of the uh, judgment, uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Lord, now listen, the Lord will by no means... Leave the guilty unpunished. They will not escape his justice. He will not leave them unpunished. He goes on to say, mountains quake because of him. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can stand? That question... Genesis or Revelation 6 reminds us of the question of Revelation 5, doesn't it? Remember that question? Voice of the angels. Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? Who is worthy? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book. No one, no one. Again, the Lord's law requires perfect righteousness. No one is worthy but the lamb. He's the only one who has fully obeyed all of God's commandments, every jot, every tittle. And therefore, all who are brought to this judgment will be condemned. No one is worthy. No one is able to stand. Romans chapter 3 gives a litany, uh, a description of mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. Their throat, he says, is an open grave. Their tongues that keep deceiving. Their feet are swift to shed blood. No one, no one is righteous. No, not even one. Not even one. 
The fact that Jesus is still called the lamb here reminds us, though, that he has gone through the judgment of the cross. He has gone through judgment himself, and he's found worthy because he was righteous. And because he is worthy, he is able to stand all those who are united to him by faith. And if you are united to him, then you will be able to stand. The question is, who is able to stand? Not you in your own strength, not you in your own ingenuity, not you in all your goodness, not you in your obedience, not you in your faithfulness, not you in your church attendance, not you in your bank accounts. You are not able to stand in yourself. Ah, but you're in Christ. And in Christ you're able to stand because Jesus is worthy. He's able to stand. You remember what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia? Chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you, Jesus said, from this hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. If you are united by Christ, or by, if you are united to Christ by faith, you will not come to this judgment that's here described in the sixth seal. You've already gone through that judgment when Jesus hung on the cross. Romans 5 says that we have been justified by faith, so we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The dread and the terror that comes to these earth dwellers as they face the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, that Dread and terror is not found by those who are in Christ. Isn't that good news? Those in Christ have peace because they've been delivered from this judgment. But if you're not in Christ, this is, this is your future. If you're still on the fence about Christ, Revelation 6 is written so that you can see where you will end up in judgment. You can turn to him. Put off your silly dreams that you can escape this condemnation and trust in him. Psalm 2, I'll just end with this, Psalm 2. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Dear friend, today, if you're not finding your refuge in Christ, today is the day to do so. Do not wait. Do not think, well, I'm a church member. I've been baptized. I made a Don't. Bank just on that. Are you trusting for Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for your very life? Are you clinging to him as though without him, you would have nothing in life at all. You would have no hope. Are you trusting in him and clinging to him because he is life itself? How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Trust in him. Come to him. And you will find him to be a full, great, and complete Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these words, which... Oh, Lord, are very frightening were we not in Christ. To think of the world 
coming unglued, the world being shaken so that there is nothing left of it. Every person, every man, woman, and child, all the great and all the mighty and all the rich and all the poor, all the free, all the slaves will be swept up in the wrath of God. Frightening, O oh Lord. That if we were to look at this only in our own self and look at our own obedience, we should be terrified. But we thank you that Jesus went to the cross. And while he hung on that cross, all the terrors of, of hell itself, the unleashing of your wrath fell upon him so that we might escape it. Lord, we think back to those people that lived in the time of Noah. They were swept up in that flood, that great judgment. But those who were in the ark escaped. And so, Lord, we thank you that we're in the ark. We're in Jesus. And ask, O oh Lord, that as we live in this world, Lord, as the world grows darker and harsher, and as the love of many grow colder and colder, and as wickedness abounds more and more, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on him, that our hearts would be chasing after him and him alone. Oh, God, have mercy upon us, we pray, and reveal your great grace to all that are here present. In Jesus' name, amen.